Welcome into the Orlando Drummer Podcast, episode nine. I can't believe it's episode nine. It's weird we've sat here for nine hours and talked about drums. It's a long time, isn't it, Chris? Definitely more than nine hours. Yeah, if you're counting all the setup and then pre-talk before we start and then after. And yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of drum chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the months and months of you talking about drums. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, with me <laughs> working for you. decades of talking about drums yeah, leading up fair. to this. Yeah, but it's one of those things. I should probably mention this at some point, too. You know, it's, it's one of those things where the predetermined, super curated content that I made for a decade before launching this podcast, I don't want to say that that got old because I still very much enjoy like curating and thinking about and planning out content and making it, you know, just constructing the the content so that it has a special delivery. So it hits a little bit different and feels a little bit different. But there is something really uniquely cool about like open long format discussions where I do find myself like, like enjoying this kind of content just in a different way. It's very apples and oranges. It's not the same as like writing a script and filming specific shots. It's very different, but I like it. I, I like uh, I like the change. Feels feels right. It's relaxed. It's great. Yeah. All right. Um, so I want to open up to a question to anybody listening, anybody watching the podcast right sure. now. Sure. Um, if you didn't choose the drums, what instrument would you have chosen? Interesting. That's actually a good question. Yeah, comment down below. Let us know what what instrument. What was your backup instrument? What was the yeah. Plan B instrument? What was yours, Chris? My, uh, I would have been piano. Piano. That's a good yeah. one. That's it's still percussive. It is. It's technically a percussion instrument. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's like there's some some sort of sex appeal for pianists <laughs> it's, that's it's, like it's, universal. It's, Guys, girls, doesn't matter. Yeah. Piano is sexy. That's a sexy instrument. <laughs> yeah. It's um yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, were you saying? No, I well, I agree with you on that. It's definitely sexy. Whereas drums is like aggressive. Drums is not. <laughs> it could be sexual, but not sexy. Probably no, not, yeah. not a sex. It might yeah. be the least. That's a good question. Is drums the least sexy instrument ever? No, the least sexy instrument is the oboe. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, uh, it has to be. The tuba. A tuba. Yeah. Yeah, that's not that's not that's not baby making music. That's not what that is. <laughs> it, sorry for any tuba players out there. Huge Man. respect to your lung capacity. Oh yeah. But it's <laughs> Shout not, out to players. It's, it's not yeah. sexy. Yeah, I think my, my backup instrument would have would have likely been guitar realistically. Um, but I think another like top contender would be saxophone. Oh yeah. And for me, it's purely based off of the sound. Like I love uh, the growliness of a saxophone. Like you can't growl on a lot of other instruments, but sax has like, I don't know, whatever that word brings up, like that, like that very specific growl that a saxophone can do. Yeah. I think that's just a dope like texture to have in an instrument, and you can't do that on drums, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then being able to go alto or tenor sax. Sure, sure, all that. those ranges, yeah. Super cool. Yeah, man. Um, awesome, well let me know if uh, you had an instrument in mind instead of the drums, what you would have played. Yeah. Um, and that'll roll us right into player puzzle. Player puzzle. Which is my favorite thing to curate. <laughs> I love doing this, by the way. I yeah. love the challenge of trying to stump you. It's yeah. a lot of fun, but it's also really challenging because for some of these drummers that are so unique, you know their style, and it's so hard to find clips of them playing where yeah. you won't be able to guess, or maybe you will. I, yeah, it's sometimes it's, it's like if it's so specific and it's a drummer I love, there's such a good chance that I'll be able to guess it. And then at the same time, like 
I don't know every drummer in the world, so it's possible that he could pick one that I'm just like, I had, I don't know who that person is, right? So, but they've been good so far. I think my favorite that like I wish I could have gotten, but I totally missed it was Tony Royster. Yeah, like there was, was there great. was enough hints where like I should have gotten that and I didn't, and so I was kind of pissed at myself for that one. But I'm excited. So we got two more today. Yes, we do. We got pretty much two a day. Any more than that, it's just be listening to drummers all day. Yeah. The whole podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll go ahead. We'll start out with an audio clip. Okay. Today. Player puzzle number one. telling stories man these drums sound good doom 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 Huh, I don't know off of that. That was so tough because it's, it, man, there's like hints of really high level stuff for sure. You could tell it's a ridiculous drummer, but that was not full throttle for them. I heard a whole lot of restraint, a lot of control, a lot of like holding back, which is tough. You don't get to hear all their entire, like the expanse of their vocabulary wasn't in there. So that's really tricky. Definitely, okay, so decent independence for sure. I say decent just based off of that clip, but uh, very good independence. Ah, uh, I don't know. I have no guess off of that one. I kind of have one guess, but I couldn't. I couldn't commit to it without <laughs> hearing more. What's our What's our next hint? This drummer has played for Shaka Khan, New Kids on the Block, and Prince. Okay, I think I know with Shaka Khan and Prince. New Kids on the Block. I'm not sure. Shaka Khan and Prince. I think I know, but the kit photo will seal the deal Ooh, on will this it? player puzzle. Oh, will it today? You found some weird ass setup that I they only found, played once. I found very interesting. <laughs> a very interesting example today. Okay. Let's see if you can guess it with this kit oh, photo. Good God. Okay. Well, based off sonar, minor, and putting the EC2 Evans heads on it. We're going to have to go Christopher Coleman. No. No. Not yeah, Christopher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You got it. <laughs> I was like, no way. No way. Yeah. Okay. Chris Coleman. Yeah, man. You picked a great clip that wasn't super mm, telling. That was yeah. tricky. I heard a couple things. Uh, I wish I knew with what they were specifically, but like little mannerisms were like, huh? Like maybe that was kind of him. Interesting. And so. This kit is a weird one. I take it it's like a setup photo. Yeah, it's uh, it was taken from his Instagram, and it was just like getting ready to record gotcha. blah, blah, months and months ago. Um, so I, I'd hope that that would kind of throw you off it not being totally set up all the way. Just well, kind of yeah, the the transition, the Sonar Minel Evans Vic Firth setup is not one that a lot of people have. That that roster of those four combined, I always think of Chris Coleman. I can't think of anybody else specifically that has. 
those four companies that they play. Um, this kit is interesting. I just watched something on it. The AQ2, but a Safari version, I think is what this is. Um, I think it's Maple, though I'm not 100% sure. But it's AQ2, which is like their upper midline. Kind of an interesting little like price tier. Um, and then much smaller sizes, which I actually like a lot. Really, really cool kit. I never had one of the AQ2 or the AQ1. I never had one here in the studio. But um, they're beautiful kits, man. Beautiful. Christopher Coleman. That's I met, right. I met him many times. He's super dope. Such a good dude. And just a scary, scary musician. Way too good. Way too good. One of the best alive, to be honest. In my top three forever. Wow, forever. top three. Yeah, that's, I put that's in top three. Song. Yeah. All right. Um, next one. Next little audio clip here. All right. Okay, so I have a guess, but that last fill, a little Herta thing, that doesn't sound like the guy I was thinking of. So it might not be him. Um, I'll give a hint to anybody listening. My guess, the, their initials are NB would be their initials, but I, I might be wrong on that one. He's also got a specific kit sound, like an audio sound that I didn't recognize there. But he does, the drummer I'm thinking of with the initials NB, he does play with the the strange click right where it's like not a normal metronome so that was in seven but it was uh i've never gotten into playing clicks like that I, it's it's too much of a puzzle well we're in player puzzles so that was probably <laughs> that was probably the correct clip to choose Fair. i'm gonna i'm gonna need a little little more on that one what's our uh, what's our funny. next hint the hint is that before becoming a professional drummer they worked as an it employee for a consulting firm Oh, uh, yeah. That's kind of, tough. That yeah. just means you're smart and nerdy, which makes you a good drummer <laughs> sometimes, right? <laughs> like, oh, attention to detail, huh? You'd be good at drums. Hmm. I got to do kit photo. I don't know from that one. I should. That's, that's actually a really good hint. All right. All so right, essentially kit photo. Okay. Got the kit photo. Weird. So this is a, a b -b baller sonar. SQ2? No, it's a Pro-Lite. Huh. Okay. Oh, okay. And Zildjian, that's helpful, too. With Zildjian. So, man, look at that. Is that like a 12 by 8 Tom on the floor? Like the chocolate version of this orange wild kit? Okay. Oh, it's different finishes. Man, I like the ones on the floor more than the kit itself. Yeah, that bottom finish. Oh man, that bottom right too. So cool. That is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Okay, so this was probably a NAM based off the fact that it's a display. Mm -hmm. And five piece kit with Zildjian and then artists who would be asked to perform at like the sonar booth and Prolite. I think I'm gonna go Aaron Spears. Oh, Did I get yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aaron Spears. Yeah. He, it's weird. He hasn't been a sonar artist that long, so he doesn't come to mind immediately. Mm -hmm. um, 
Aaron's been in. Yeah, he's been in this studio. Uh, him and I are both uh, clear tune um, in your monitor endorsers. Yeah. I actually play his signature play. I use his signature <laughs> uh, signature in ears, the AS sevens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, him and I have talked sonar quite a bit. And uh, man, he's a awesome dude, awesome player. And um, yeah, that was a tricky one. That was really really tough. Man, he's played with. So he's got such, a, such an eclectic style. He's a hard one to pin mm-hmm. down too, because like his. You might just throw him in the gospel chops category, but it's really hard to do that because he's that is definitely not the only kind of thing that he plays. Yeah, I mean he's got one of the biggest gigs in the world with a you know with a pop singer. So yeah, yeah, with yeah. Ariana, yeah. Ariana gig man. That's a that's like gig of a lifetime. You know how of course so much fun. Yeah. Oh my good. He posts videos too. If you haven't seen him, he posts some really cool like throws a GoPro on stage in the stadium with an Ariana Grande gig, which is a Man, that is that's a crazy like POV camera to have there, you know, yeah. to see uh very few drummers in the world get to experience what that's like to play with somebody that famous, that big. Um that's amazing, man. And he he deserves it. He's been been in the game a long time. Long yeah. time. Yeah, his video, his caught up video, uh It's like from, one of the most viewed drum videos it, of all it's, time. It's one it? of the the best drum performances I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. And I love Usher too. I wear Usher's cologne, no joke. I've worn it like for ten <laughs> ten years. I've worn I've worn Usher's cologne. <laughs> insane you should do another tour yeah i'd try go to that that'd be awesome <laughs> all right cool so that'll close out player puzzle we weren't cool, cool. able to stump adam this time but maybe next time maybe next <laughs> never time. again <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll move on to another one we get to talk a little bit more accent or ghost accent or ghost accent or ghost uh, so if you're not familiar with this segment, we'll just explain it very quickly. I'll introduce Adam with a topic or a photo or a video or something like that. And we'll get his approval, an accent, or a disapproval, a ghost. So first up is, what do you feel about light-up drums? Light-up drums, like um, Casey Cooper works with a company that they do that. Uh, what's it, is it called like drum light? It's something pretty straightforward. It's like an LED kit that you can buy. And you, is it battery power? See, that's where it gets a little weird, right? Like, where do the wires go? Is this battery powered? That'd be a little smarter. Um, I think it's cool. I think it's cool when they're triggered against playing live and you put it in an acrylic kit, which is kind of how Casey did it. I think that's really cool. I think it is mm, definitely unnecessary, but so many things about live performances are unnecessary. You know what else is unnecessary? Pyrotechnics is unnecessary, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, right? It's also very cool. Um, yeah, I would say leave that stuff for live. I think it's like a videographer's nightmare to have, uh, to have, I would never want that in my kit now. It just seems like, like a lighting catastrophe or like a camera setting nightmare sort of thing. Um, but I also think there might be something you could do like shoot down the middle where you put very soft white lights inside drums that are like not see-through. So they're just wooden drums with like thinner coated heads so you'd have like a glow coming out of basically them. a diffuser yeah the drum yeah. would be the softbox yeah that would be kind of cool i've definitely put small lights underneath a drum to have some light come through it before but it was more so just to like create kind of like you're saying like a softbox kind of glow um instead of some like obvious visual effect i think it's cool i think it's cool but i would say i just be careful i don't know that i would like somebody that like branded 
their online content with that. It's just extreme. Yeah, I was just gonna ask, like, what do you think about that? I've seen that going through Instagram. People doing that? People, I mean, you've got, you know, lights on the drums and around the drums and lighting that they put in their videos. But yeah. Drums that light up themselves, I feel like they can be really distracting. It can be distracting. I'm also, I'm a minimalist. I'd rather have less stuff that is of like a higher quality and that is a little bit more on the timeless side as opposed to somebody who like has i don't know neon green everything all over the place <laughs> i'm sorry i'm not sure to pick on like aaron edgar right who's got like a very loud room at the same time it's very um he's a buddy of mine by the way what's up aaron um it's it's one of those things where it's like it's just personal preference like your character should be in your drum set in your content in your whole setup right yeah it should be your character uh for me personally i would ghost drum lights just on like a, it feels attention seeking e kind of like that i'd rather have like a classy minimalist clean sort of setup in whether that's live or in the studio that's just the direction i would go but i'd say if you own it if you rock it if it's you know, if that's your jam and that's what you want to do, especially live, if you're playing like EDM, that's where I'd put it in. Like an EDM show. Yeah, I'd put I'd put the lights in there for sure. So I'll give it the accent overall. Not in not for me in this studio, but in general, yeah, gets an accent. Um, okay. And then I sent you a video for our next little topic here. Okay. Alright, what in the hell is this thing? Whoa. So they cut them to different sizes. Interesting. Okay, so first impression, the the bell sucks. That was not good. That bell did not sound good at all, which is okay. I mean, it's got a lot of function. The bell wasn't good, and I didn't like the crash, the actual crash. But the idea that you would pizza slice out a cymbal like that is very interesting because it almost had like a tonal scale to it. Maybe not quite a scale, but clearly what they did was like slice in enough to where, at least at like different distances. So each one of those has like its own tone. And I would imagine those holes that they put a little bit further in at the end of the cuts are to prevent the cracks from spreading, right? Because those cracks would open up and eventually it would, the cracks would meet somewhere in the middle and then you would just have two pieces of metal break in half. So who makes this? So this is a, their Instagram is emjmod underscore symbols. It's okay. a Japanese, um, we'll call it a manufacturer okay. for basically modified symbols. They take zildjans istanbuls minor symbols and then they kind of cut them up to modify them for certain tonal qualities interesting and so he's got a couple patents pending i guess for this symbol in particular weird yeah it's it's a cool idea i think i'll give it the accent right away i mean it, it's i don't mind people experimenting with these sort of strange ideas I think this would have far more of a use in an obscure studio setting. So if you had like a weird album that you were recording and you needed some like spooky sort of symbol effects, you could definitely put a super high-end mic right above this thing and get some weird tones out of it. I could hear that for sure. I think on in a gigging situation, probably not. I really don't know that it would be that useful. 
But it, yeah, I would say recording environment, it, it would have to get the accent. I think that that you would find a lot of use for it for sure. And I'm also interested in if there was any like math that they had to do to get the tones to be somewhat similar, like a wind yeah. chime. Like you buy a wind chime and it's yeah. in a key, right? Where it's it's they're not just like random notes. Like they they have to do some sort of math game on like a wind chime where the length of the pipe, the diameter of the pipe, the thickness of the walls of the pipe would all give you a certain fundamental frequency. And you'd have to know that for each one of those pipes in a wind chime. And this felt kind of like that. Like they must have done some spacing math to know where to cut these like pie slices or pizza slices of the symbol. Interesting. I'd love to know like some of the thoughts of the guy or the the team of whoever people made this. Uh, but yeah, really cool. I'll give it the accent. That's dope. You could also use it in an orchestral setting, too. Yeah, that too. That too. A lot more like individual symbol work, right, yeah. that you would do in, in that kind of setting. Yeah. Which, I mean, to carry around probably one symbol with perfect tonal qualities to it and maybe a scale would be better than carrying around a heavy case of bells or giant chimes, for that matter. Yeah. Which are not fun to load in and out. Yeah, <laughs> those are bad, right? Those are bad. Because you did tour with, um, it was like a kid's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, I did a tour with a youth orchestra. A and, youth orchestra. And, uh, Sorry, a kid's thing. You know what I mean. You get yeah, it. A kid's thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we went to Germany. We went to China uh, in 2019. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, carried around some bells and chimes and timpani. And oh, yeah. I got to say, if you think that loading your drums in and out of any gig that is, you know, by yourself. Or slinging you know, a timpani through you China. Give it a stop shot. Stop your crying because, like, even like a range three or four timpani is just, a, it's a monster. Yeah, that's it, a massive drum, man. They're, yeah, they're yeah. crazy. But anyway, last topic on Accent or Ghost. Okay. A bass drum woofer. Bass drum woofer. Oh, so like the, the sub kick? Is that kind of what they call them? It's basically another kick in front of your kick drum yeah where it, it dw did this back in like i don't know 2004 yeah i remember when they got popular yeah a while ago it's interesting so i guess what i don't fully understand is is it for is it for live or recording is it audible without electricity does that make sense does it give an acoustic benefit I, I, in the room i think so right because the the way dw put it was that you can now hear an additional amount of low-end frequencies because of the air being reverberated by your rezzo head from your main kick gotcha. pushes the batter head on the woofer, which then circulates air within that woofer, which is thinner, kind of like a pancake drum. Yeah, so okay. maybe... So there's also two kinds of this that I'm curious about. One of them looks like... It looks like a snare, that goes right in front, right in front of yeah. the yeah, in front of your the porthole of your bass drum. And the other one, though, I've seen this is a little more ridiculous. It's like an extender for your entire yeah. kick yeah. drum. Yeah, it's the same diameter as your kick drum. The same diameter, just like yep. an inch in front of it, and then that's yeah. like four inches deep. See, uh, I don't. I feel it feels like if you have to do that, if you're missing so much low end. That you have to like either extend your kick drum or use some device to enhance the low end, like to that degree. Uh, for me, that's over the line where it's like it's time for a new drum set. It's time for a new kick drum, right? Like maybe you need some mahogany down there. Maybe you need a couple extra plies to get a little bit more punch. So for for me, that sounds like an upsell. 
that I don't want. I don't, I, I think I have heard kick drums in person that are mind blowing. Like they sound pre-EQ'd, pre-compressed. They like pass through your chest like you got shot with a shotgun. Like they're, they're super powerful. And I can't imagine taking one of those like unbelievable kick drums that I've played. Uh, one that comes to mind was a 22 inch Birch Babinga Star Classic that I heard from my buddy Mikey Bolko years ago, worked at Sam Ash with me years ago. He had a kick drum that was just like, if you don't like this kick drum, like you suck you're and insane. you don't, you're insane. Yeah. It was that, I mean, some of them can get that dialed. They sound that good. And I can't imagine hearing that and being like, no, nah, not low enough for me. Like, ah, you just need a new drum set then. If that's how you feel about your kick, where like you're starting to add on and extend to the edge of, I'm not into that. Now, studio stuff, everything's a little different because you might need some sound that is beyond what an acoustic drum set could do, no matter what the wood is, no matter what the plies are, no matter what head you choose. But I would say for, yeah, just purely like acoustic drums and live drumming and just practice stuff, if you don't like your kick drum sound enough that you're going to go buy something like that, I think you just your money would be better spent on a better kit or a kit that's more closely aligned with like your personal preferences. So yeah, I think I'm going to give it the ghost. I've never been interested in those. And even in seeing them, I'm not even interested enough to like find out exactly what they do. I'm just like, ah, that's, you know, whatever. I'll give that the ghost, I think. Yeah. All right. Too bad, bass drum woofers. <laughs> cool. That'll finish that back center ghost. That'll move us right on into Sleeper Spotlight. Sleeper Spotlight. Another fun one. All I can right. scour the internet and find drummers that y'all are sleeping on. Aaron Spears. Yes. Nobody knows who that guy is. Um, and then we'll get Adam's opinions, impressions, and any constructive criticism that he might have. Well, yeah. Cool. So this week, go ahead and start out with Has Drums. A little outside video for today. Has Drums, the outside video. 16 seconds? Yeah, pretty sh short. Pretty a little short. shorty from him. All right, here we go. Leopard skin. Cool. Man, that is a that is a wild kit, first of all. That's a bold statement uh, for a drum set. Man, that thing is uh I like drum sets that you can spot a mile away. I do like that. I think that's 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 really cool. Do I want it? I don't think so, <laughs> but it's a pretty kit. Also, I like your um, I like your top right crash that evolution from Sabian. Some of the highest quality symbols that that uh, Sabian makes. I used to have those back in the day. Beautiful symbol, man, for sure. Um, so this clip, I'm gonna watch it one more time before I say anything. Actually, 16 seconds. Let's play it back one more time. It sounds good too. It's pretty dialed in. Cool. So I think one thing, it's a piece of advice I've given to, to many people on this segment before is that I can hear you reaching to the upper ends of your, of your skill set for sure. And a lot of times what I like to see is like a little bit more of 
Um, a little bit more self-control in that if your plane can go to a 10, like choose to make it a seven sometimes because the ideas will land a little bit cleaner. So I can hear that you're reaching for some of those ideas. But with that said, um, what I can hear in this clip is, is very good. Your six stroke roll is super, super clean. Overall, man, I think your technique is really, really good. It, this sounds very clean. And I also, I hear a good amount of power in your playing where you're not you're not light-handed. You're naturally a little bit heavier-handed, and I personally like that quality um, in pretty much all drummers for the most part. I like when people play through the kit. I also think kits sound better when you play that way, um, unless they're like tuned to be played lightly, like kind of a jazz kit with higher tunings and uh, very high resonance. Um, I think a lot of times when you have a more modern drum set, they just sound good when you lay into them, and you're playing with a lot of power, so I like that. Uh, let's do the next clip from him. This is the red kit? Yeah. Okay, let's do that one. Cool, tricky. Super clean, man. Real tight playing. Cool, that was awesome. Yeah, very trapped out, very clean. I like... um. I love when, when people take like hip hop drumming and make it sort of a part of their style because hip hop, I mean, I suppose you could find all these weird crossovers where acoustic drummers did play huge roles in what hip hop drumming is. But also if you're going modern hip hop, like trap music, there's so many elements of that style of music that are that are not like natural for a human to play. So it takes a lot of like reverse engineering about like, wait a minute, what was that? weird robotic subdivision change that sort of happened and and it's making its way from like the the electronic drumming world it's making its way into people's playing and so i hear some ideas that definitely wouldn't have been popular like 20 or 30 years ago and i like that i think that's really cool um i also hear that you are that your kit sound matches like what your what your playing style is in that your kit is very tight and articulate and modern and your playing ideas are very tight and articulate and modern. And I think that is a really, really cool thing that you have going on that um, the sound of your hats, the sound of your snare, the sound of your bass drum, using that stack to sort of embellish some of those little trap elements combined with what you're playing, I think all of that fits together really well. So I see a very cohesive sound and style um, that is very like, it, it just in that modern, trappy hip hop sort of realm. So cool. it's really cool, man. I like it a lot. I also like your your shallow little floor tom here. I think that's a that's cool. I like shallow floor toms a lot, a little punchy. But yeah, man, that was a good one. Very cool. Cool. That was Has Drums. Has Drums, check them out. Has underscore drums on Instagram. Okay. Cool. Next up is Team DeMaio. Hope I'm not butchering that last word. Okay. Got one video from him. Choose the one with the uh, little rolling pad thing in the, in the rolling video. pad. Here we go. see Latin Pro on the SPD. I hear it coming.
weird. He's got a lot of effects happening. Man, what would you call that style of groove? I seemed trained Latin-ish, real constant, real kind of drivey, and yeah. then he's got like this massive amount of reverb on the whole track. That's yeah, just kind of spacey and weird. Yeah, it was like Latin experimental house or something like that, right? Like, yeah, yeah, almost like a deep house kind of kind of music. Yeah, it, deep house Latin maybe. That was interesting. I got really caught up in just the style of what yeah. he was playing, trying to be like, I, it's it's hard to pin down what what exactly is happening but i also think that's really cool i like that a lot yeah real tricky very tricky he had a lot of good independence in there for sure there was a few moments where he really dug into the eighth notes on the hi-hat or i don't know that they were eighth notes i'd have to listen back and count but he he chose to embellish and pull out certain elements it's one of those things where like if there's multiple elements inside of a groove happening you know one one trick that you can do to like paint a different picture with your groove is to consciously bring up the volume of one of those elements or one of those textures inside of the groove. And I saw him do that a couple times, which is definitely a, a higher level way to think about how you present a groove or you know paint this musical picture. So that was really, really cool. Um, tough for me to say anything about like technique or anything like that, or even kit sound, right? Because this was so, um, such like an art piece was this clip. It looks like it's a sonar from the lugs on yeah, I can't tell. It looks like a sonar, but I'm not 100% sure. Interesting, though. Also, it's funny. We were talking about lighting earlier, and I kind of like this purplish-blue glow vibe that he has going on. It's a good example of how you can kind of brand your videos and get a little bit of a look happening with some lights there. Uh, interesting. So let's go to the next clip from him. Yeah, I like how definitely he's he's a bit more of like a storyteller of a groover because I heard some elements of the groove, right where he would do the bell like those two hits, and then the next measure it would actually he would like shoulder the ride cymbal with that little big fat snare drum ish yeah. assembly thing that's hanging off of it, right? And so it, those ideas take a little bit of patience to execute, right? Like you have to think about every other bar I'm gonna do this, and then every other bar I'm gonna do this. And spacing out your ideas like that is a very storyteller-ish way to approach grooving. And I like that because it shows me that he plays with a lot of intention, right? Like he, he is thinking about what he plays well beyond just the note that he's on, right? It's not just like a artist living in the moment this is my expression like there's a little bit more of like a tactical approach to it because you have to have that if you're going to play a, a groove that takes two measures or four measures to resolve itself um, and this is something that's actually a little bit harder for me to do is to be very intentional about what I'm playing now because I know I'm going to contrast it with something a little later in the story a little later in the music so I really liked that um, I also think his setup is really cool he seems very in, into not only recording uh, but also like this 
presenting like a complex musical sound. I can hear his drums are mixed in some inter interesting ways, uh, and I'd love to hear him use that SPDX a, a lot more. But overall, really cool, man. Interesting stuff. I imagine he's got a lot of videos that are all very different. Yeah, yeah. I, Something I, along those lines? Yeah, and I tried to find kind of a, a good range of things. but Yeah, very, those videos very, weren't, weren't too similar, yeah. Very different uh, drummer, too, to have on. Typically, we have guys that shred yeah like crazy but i thought Choppers. somebody more consistent was also worth showing sure absolutely absolutely also these guys tend to make a little more money than people who chop out all the time yes. so there's there's that too yes. this is the guy you hire by the way um yeah man really really cool i'd love to check out some more of his videos and see everything he's got going on but awesome ones today man very cool cool all right that'll end it oh yeah now we get to move on to q and a q and a so any of these questions, if you'd like to ask us questions for this Q&A segment of the podcast, you can comment down below on YouTube. You can send them to Adam via Instagram. You can send them directly to me at chris at orlandodrummer.com. Or you can even write questions in the forums of orlandodrummer.com. First question from Sid Hearthsonall. Okay. How did you come up with the name The Orlando Drummer? <laughs> so, interesting one. So, I first started... Let's see, I gotta take you through the timeline of when I actually started uh, working in the drum industry. I was doing private lessons full-time back in 2009-ish, 2009-2010, and I had taught at a family enrichment center was what it was called. It was basically like an after-school program for rich white kids, I guess you'd call it. I mean, they had like photography classes for six-year-olds. It was a weird, weird kind of place. Um, it was that sort of like cooking classes for like kids in, in third and fourth grade. But they had a music program and I taught very beginner level drums, guitar, and piano. And I was suited for that job because I could teach a six-year-old even back then. Um, and then I started booking privately. There were people who had either moved or had left that school and they still wanted their kid to study with me. They were like nine and 10 years old back then. Um, yes, it was early as 2009, long time ago. And eventually I, I wanted to make some sort of website for booking where people could see my schedule and prices and have some sort of bio. And I thought, man, maybe I could actually get some students. So I searched many different names, um, combining the words Orlando and drum stuff. And I eventually came to Orlando drummer and I made that website and obviously the rest is history. Eventually I went online and I sort of kept that name Orlando drummer, but I can tell you one thing that I regret about the name Orlando drummer is that one, I ended up starting a business that is worldwide, and I have the city in my name, which does not make a lot of sense. By the time I realized this and tried to fix it, it was it was too late, right? It was like it was like I had to basically start over, and I thought that would be a worse decision to make. But where I feel the, the where I feel bad about this name is that if you are looking for a drummer in Orlando and you Google any combination of the words Orlando and drummer. I kind of dominate the first like 20 pages of Google and I feel really bad because I don't play gigs locally. So I'm not the guy you're looking for. The guy you're looking for is on page 53 and he totally deserve, <laughs> deserves to be found if he is gigging locally and he's a drummer in Orlando. So part of me is sort of like, oh man, like I didn't mean to do that necessarily, but that's just kind of what ended up happening. So, and I've also thought before, you know, if I ever moved, would I change it? I, I almost moved to Atlanta maybe like six or seven years ago, and I didn't, but I was really on the fence of like, should I buy atlantadrummer.com? 
Like that seems like a bad idea. Anyway, at this point, I don't think I'm making any changes. I think it'll it'll always be like a nod to the time when I was a full-time teacher here in Orlando because that was probably five to seven years of my life was riding around on a motorcycle doing private drum lessons in this city. And if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that experience, um, and if it wasn't for this URL, you know, orlandodrummer.com, I probably wouldn't have the same career that I have. So I, so I owe something to this city and the private drum lessons that I gave here, those students and those families. So that's why it's still Orlando Drummer. Um, but if you're just starting a brand now, don't put your city in it. Because if this goes as well as possible, you'll probably want to expand outside your city at some point. And uh, yeah, you don't want to be in, in my position. So yeah, that's where it came from, though. <laughs> the city beautiful, yeah, as we call it. And last question okay. by d.art.dv.05 underscore 15. Ooh, I'll remember that name. <laughs> yeah. Touch complicated. <laughs> this is a good one. Okay. Um, why do you prefer single over double bass? Sure. So first and foremost, uh, style is the biggest one. You know, I, I think if you're playing a style where it's required to play double bass, that's why you should play double bass. It, it really just comes down to that. So for me, I don't play any styles of music where it is totally necessary for me to have uh, a double bass pedal. You know, and I, I have done some metal stuff with Nick DiPiro. I've done a couple metal songs with him. But again, you know, I don't need double bass to make those happen necessarily. So style is the number one thing that will determine whether or not you should go buy a double bass pedal. I think the other reason, though, is that if you never bought one, if you never, ever bought one, you would still have enough shit to do with your left foot that you don't ever have to worry about, you know, your left foot playing like the bass drum against your right foot. That is a whole skill set. It's a whole category. And yes, you could spend your entire life getting good at double bass things. You definitely could do that if you wanted to do that. But again, that's all style dependent. For me, I look at it as though I have so much work to do with my left foot and controlling the instrument that is the hi-hat that that alone could be the next 20 or 30 or 50 years of my playing, right? Especially if we're gonna open this up to like splash close techniques or just the concept of left foot independence, that alone could take decades and decades and decades to, to learn all the things that I might wanna learn. So the idea that I would stop working on that so I could play you know, a double bass pedal Man, I would really have to be in love with some specific genres that required that because I just feel like I have too much work to do on my left foot um, as it pertains to the hi-hat specifically. So that's kind of where I am. But I, I do wonder sometimes if there are mannerisms or textures in my playing that would be very cool, but I'll never know what they are unless I have a double bass pedal. So there is a part of me that wants to try it. I don't think I would ever turn into a metal player. I'm just not that into metal to do something like that. But I wonder if there would be like little mannerisms and textures and, and things like that that would come out because it's like, oh, you, you actually can play some other things with a double bass pedal, even if it's not, you know, like doom metal or whatever, you know, people are, whatever the kids are playing nowadays. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, for me, that's the main reason, genre. And then just below that would be that I got too much stuff to do with my left foot on the hi-hat anyway. So that's my answer. But good question, man. Good question. One everybody has to answer on their own, you know. Cool. All right. Well, that'll do it for Q&A. 
and I'll leave it to you to close out the podcast. All right. So let's close out today with a little bit of a chat about endorsements. This is a topic I've talked about many, many, many times. I've gone into it in my social media masterclass on OrlandoDrummer.com. I've talked about it. Uh, there's a YouTube video specifically. It came out probably three or four years ago. Um, I think five things you need to know about endorsements. It's on this YouTube channel or my YouTube channel. And it's a topic I want to revisit here just briefly because it is so commonly misunderstood how endorsements actually work. I think a lot of times drummers will, younger drummers especially, will use endorsements as like this, it's the goal. They said it as like the light at the end of the tunnel, that if everything goes well, I would end up being endorsed and then boom, like the sky opens up and everything happens for you. In reality, you have to be successful first before the endorsements even come. And endorsements that come that come your way, opportunities like that that come your way, before you are measurably successful, are ones that you should be very skeptical of, right? Because think of an endorsement like a business deal. You are offering something of value to a company, and in exchange, they are offering something of value to you, right? So everybody has to bring something to the table here. And if you are not bringing anything to the table yet, because you're early on in your career, that's okay. That's okay. But it also means that you're probably not ready for an endorsement because you don't have anything super valuable to offer this company just yet. And if that's your reality, that's not a big deal. That is where everyone starts and it's where a vast majority of drummers find themselves, where they don't quite have enough value to offer a company, where that company would want to um, brand themselves alongside you or give you discounted gear or free gear in some cases. You know, that just might not be the position that you're in. And that is totally, totally okay. But I can tell you one thing that I see a lot of people doing wrong, and that is sort of racing towards endorsements. The reason this is so problematic is because you're going if you're going to say yes to the first endorsement offer that comes in, that offer is probably not going to be too great. You know, it, it, sure, it might have a little bit of a discount on gear, uh, but if it's one where the company still profits, I think you should be kind of question. You should question that a little bit because ultimately you're still a client, right? Not necessarily an artist. It's not as collaborative. It's a little more like they're still selling you stuff. And that's a whole topic for another day. A lot of companies are guilty of doing that sort of thing. But I think when you race towards an endorsement, what ends up happening is that you'll take a deal where you don't have a lot of leverage in that deal. You're not offering anything that valuable that they couldn't get from a lot of other people that might be in your position. And if you think about this in a different way, what happens if you are the guy who turns down all of the endorsements for 10 years, for 15 years? By the time these companies are interested in you, you know, they'll end up making you offers where you have all the leverage because now they've knocked on your door, not vice versa. And that is a really enviable position to be in when companies are seeking seeking your endorsement, not quite vice versa. I think that's the, the most ideal, that's the optimal position to be in, especially from a business standpoint. And let's be honest, these are business deals. So I really like the idea of not even seeking endorsements for a very long time. And I know that stings as a young drummer, you know, who maybe is really excited about that possibly happening in the next year or two. But just imagine if you could wait another two or three years, and then these companies, they come to find you. You're not the guy asking to be endorsed. You're the one that they're seeking because you have made so much noise, you've made so much of, a, of an impact in the industry that they can't possibly ignore you. There's a quote from um, the comedian Steve Martin 
where I, something along the lines of that, I, I'll, I'll throw it on the screen if I can find it, but it's something along the lines of make so much noise, be such a force in your industry that you can't possibly be ignored. And I like that approach so much more than the one where you make a little tiny bit of noise and the moment you have some traction, you go knocking on all the doors to see who will take a bite. Um, I think the opposite approach is really the way to go. Um, and trust me, if you have something to offer this industry, the, the drum industry, and you know it's well received, it is a matter of time before companies come knocking. They are always looking. They're, they're deeply plugged into the industry. So if you're wondering if they'll ever see you, if they'll ever catch wind of your videos or your content or your playing or this album, they will. They're looking all the time, but sometimes you have to exercise a lot of patience. And my message today is that it is so deeply in your favor to be patient when it comes to endorsements. Don't rush them. Don't take the first deal or the second or the third that comes your way unless it is truly what you want. Um, and in my experience, the longer you wait, the more leverage you have, uh, the greater value you offer that company. And everyone ends up being more excited and happier about these deals when they happen. Um, so let them build you know, grow your brand, grow yourself, grow as a drummer, grow as a person. And by the time that deal happens, um, you'll just be in, in a really, really good position. So that's my, some general thoughts on endorsements. We could expand down the road, but any endorsement questions, shoot them over. We could, uh, yeah, yeah we could go deeper into this topic. I'd love to. Yeah. That's awesome. And we just to mention every company's different too. I've got a different relationship with every single company I work with, how I became endorsed, what the deal looks like. Um, how I interact with them is different with every company. I think people don't don't realize that too. They think it's like there's some generic contract that like a drummer signs with the universe. Like it, they're all unique business relationships. So that might be a fun thing to explore later too. Yeah. So. Well, even with like like CTM, they're in town, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and, that makes it different so too. We can we can go and visit them, and we'd have. And mm -hmm. They're a very very you know beautiful set of people that are making that company yeah. as successful as it is. That's a family vibe in comparison to your conversations and the relationship you have with Chris. Brewer over at Minel. Yeah, that's much more. I mean, yeah, the, it's a family vibe, but it's not the same. It's not like a single yeah. family working yeah. locally here. Yeah, it's very different. And then there's who else? Like, um, like Earthworks is another one where it's not necessarily a family vibe, but it is a small town where they operate out of and they're far away. So I've only met them briefly at NAM, but like, their approaches to everything, it's all different. Each one is totally different. I think people miss that a lot. They don't understand that like um, each relationship you have with one of these companies, totally different from another. So yeah, we'll get into this. Maybe we'll uh, we'll open this up on another podcast and explore a little bit about what some of those relationships look like. Maybe some do's and don'ts, things like that. Well, that's it. That's all we got for episode nine, guys. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Oh yeah. We will cool. catch you guys next week. Much appreciated. Bye. Bye.